Good morning to all those who are joining us in the sanctuary and through the broadcast this morning as we study the Word of God from the prophet Isaiah. This summer, this series, Beauty from Ashes, is all about remembering that what God wants is to bring from, for us from brokenness to new life. And I think after the winter we just had, we all understand that a little better, right? One of the ways that I survived this long winter was by meeting a friend to do exercise videos twice a week. And she found these workouts online and they were from all over the world, which turned out to be really pretty entertaining. So we did Zumba, of course, the Latin American dance workout. And we did one workout from India that looked like it was set inside the bottle of I Dream of Genie. Do you remember that show? That was kind of fun. We did one that was filmed on a military base where we had to keep yelling the countdown, 10! nine, eight. We only did that one once. <laughs> and we did one from Scotland where the accents reminded us of the kitchen help from Downton Abbey. So that was kind of fun. Uh, but one of my favorites was a Thai bow video where this very burly African-American instructor who was both very intimidating and very kind taught us that when you're throwing a punch, you have to make sure that your thumb is out and not tucked into your fist, because if it's in and you really throw your whole weight into a punch, you could severely injure your thumb. And thumb in punches might look good, but they actually don't deliver any power because you're instinctively always protecting your thumb. And since I don't really intend to do a lot of punching in life, I didn't really listen to that much. But it, found, it turned out that we really weren't allowed to forget it because partway through, the, worst, through the, the workout as we were working out together, uh, we're working out and all of a sudden the instructor would scream out very suddenly, where's your thumb? Ah! <laughs> and a couple of times I actually looked down to make sure they hadn't gone missing, you know, because he was trying to tell us. He was shocking us out of our pattern to show us, where's your thumb? Where's your thumb? And about the third time he screamed at us that way, he stopped and he said, I got nothing but love for you, but you gotta watch that thumb. Don't you forget, you don't wanna get into that habit. It goes nowhere good. He was intimidating, but kind. He wanted to shock us out of that pattern so that he could give us a new way that would help. Where's your thumb? Now, I don't tell you that story because I want you out punching people. In fact, I really hope you don't. But it seems to me that in Isaiah 1, God is using that same kind of approach. Because God's people had fallen into patterns that on the outside might look just fine, but they were leading to harmful habits. They were doing things that looked like worship on the outside, but had no real power because all they were really trying to do was to protect their own agendas. What was being offered to God as worship was just empty efforts that weren't actually leading them to love God or to love their neighbor. So from the beginning of Isaiah, God starts demanding, where's your heart? I got nothing but love for you, but you got to watch your heart. Don't get into that empty religious duty habit. It goes nowhere good. It'll only end up hurting you. You got to know where your heart is. You got to know right from the start. And at this point in Isaiah, people's hearts were in very, very different places. It's important to remember that God wants to bring beauty out of ashes because the book of Isaiah starts mostly by pointing out how deep the ashes have gotten. They're wading through ashes and it's about to get a lot ashier because the people have all been obeying the sacrificial laws, but you could tell by their lives they had forgotten what it's all about. 
When God gave the people the law and the sacrificial system, that practice was meant to give them a way to be accountable for their sin and to be restored, to show that they wanted to live their lives in relationship with God and in harmony with his word, which called them also to live in fairness with their neighbor. If you'll remember, seven out of the Ten Commandments are all about how we live in relationship with each other. The sacrificial system was about ongoing, growing relationships of accountability and trust with God and with neighbor. But the pagan cultures that were all around them didn't think that way. When they made sacrifices to their idols, they saw it more like they were villagers throwing meat to feed the lion so it didn't break in and feed on them. Worship for them was more of a preemptive strike for protection. You feed the ornery gods, and then they leave you alone. You buy them off, and then you can be free to do whatever you want. That was the pagan philosophy. And after time, that started to rub off on the Hebrew people, thinking that maybe what God really wanted was this ritual sacrifice, this religious duty. And if they just did those things, then it didn't matter if they lied or cheated or killed their neighbor. What would God care about that as long as he got his offerings? So in short, they forgot who God actually is. And they started to feel like God needed them to do these rituals for his benefit, which is kind of like kids thinking that they have to do their homework because their parents need to see finished homework to survive, right? (laughs) Of course, it makes a parent feel good if their kids do their homework, and it makes them upset if they don't, But that's not because the parent needs finished homework. Parents want their kids to do homework because it will help them to learn and to grow. It teaches them accountability to their teachers and to their classmates as they do projects. The parent cares that the kid does homework because the parent cares what happens to the kid's heart and mind and future. And the same was true of the sacrificial system. God didn't give it to the people to benefit himself. It was meant for the people to have tools to grow in love and respect for God and in community of accountability and restoration with each other. It was meant to help build a trustworthy world. It was about loving God and neighbor in an intentional way, meant to develop a relationship of trust and of faith. But somewhere along the line, people started thinking of that system instead as a way to manipulate power. So they offered their religious actions and sacrifices to appease God, And they disconnected their hearts and they chose to live themselves as greedy consumers who themselves needed to be appeased. And this system that was meant to build trust became a cover for self-centered oppression of other people. So with that context in mind, listen again to what God says in Isaiah 1. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate With all my being, they have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. 
Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. So do you hear what God is saying there? What he really cares about? That God is not some corrupt judge that you can buy off with your religious practice so he'll look the other way. First of all, because you have nothing that he needs. <laughs> and second of all, that what matters to him is the heart, always the heart. Worship is always a relational offering of the heart. And if it isn't an offering of the heart, then it isn't worship. We can't worship God with our heart while we are actively defying his word and his character with our lives. Where's your heart? He asks, because that makes all the difference. Now, sometimes when people read this passage, they think, oh, God is saying he doesn't like rituals. We should stop doing rituals. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. The festivals that he's talking about are things that God commanded the people to do to help them to remember to honor him on a regular basis because human beings forget we need reminders to help us, and God knows that about us. The problem wasn't the presence of the ritual. It was the absence of the heart. King David honored the Lord in those exact same feasts and rituals, and God was deeply pleased with his worship, calling him a man after my own heart. Because David used those rituals as they were intended to bring his heart fully to the Lord. And in fact, heartfelt ritual can be a powerfully countercultural expression that we belong to a different kind of kingdom. After the exile, when the people started rebuilding the temple, daring to practice their rituals of faith in a hostile context was a bold statement of trust in God. It says in Ezra 3, despite their fear, of the peoples around them. They built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. And after that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted, for joy. Now that's worship with heart. These people are bringing all that they are and their sorrow for the past and their joy for God's provision now. They're bringing it all to the Lord because they know that what they need right now is his power and his presence. And they risk everything to show him the honor and the reverence that he deserves. And in Ezra, you see that the joy of the Lord falls on them and blesses them to begin again in his power alone. So what made that worship so powerful? I think after all the people had gone through in the exile, they finally realized what worship was all about. That it wasn't about their perfect fulfillment of expectations. It wasn't about buying off God's good favor. It was about remembering that we need God's power in our lives now. It was about approaching God in relationship and humility, trusting that he'll meet us there. See, it's so easy to look at these people in Isaiah 1 and judge them. Think, what are they thinking? Why would they think that only, God only wants those actions? But judging tends to be dangerous, right? We live in a culture where many people believe that being a Christian just means doing the right thing. I'm a good person. That's what Jesus wants. I'm a good person who does right things most of the time. So that's it. I'm done. Now, hands off the rest of my life, God. <laughs> But isn't that just replacing sacrificial ritual with our own modern definition of expectations met? 
with actually a whole lot less bother, reverence, or sacrifice on our part? Where's the heart? Let me ask, is that what Jesus died for? To show us how to be generally good people, nicer people than those in Isaiah 1? Or is there something else entirely that God wants for our hearts? A very different kind of life that Jesus died to give us. James 2 tells us that faith without any actions to back it up is dead. And there's a lot of truth to that. If we say we believe, but that faith doesn't change anything about how we live, do we really believe it? Are we really connected to the living God? But if faith without works is dead, works without faith is even deader. (laughs) Sacrifices without the heart, without connection, what are these to me, God says. And centuries later, in John 5, Jesus says to the Pharisees who put all of their hopes in their right actions, he says to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Finally, now we see God's plan for the heart. Salvation doesn't come through our works, doesn't come through our right understanding, it doesn't come through us meeting expectations. It only comes in relationship with the one who has the power to save. We need something greater than us. The truth is you can be a better Bible scholar than all of the Pharisees. You can have stunning insight. You can understand all about how Jesus came to save the world and bring it back into relationship with God. And Jesus will say to you, that's great. So glad that you understand. But now, will you come to me? (laughs) Jesus is calling out to us today, too. Where's your heart? Because to live the life your heart was meant to live, your heart needs to find its way home. And the one who is home is here to meet you today. When we finally realize that we need more than we can figure out or we can offer, when we realize that what we need is Jesus himself to save us and fill us and lead us, then we begin to understand what worship really is. Surrender. Expecting God to meet you and to move. So what does heartfelt worship look like? It looks like King David performing all the rituals of honor and praise with reverence. And it looks like the sinful woman Weeping at Jesus' feet in joy, washing his feet with her tears and drying his feet with her hair, hearing Jesus tell her, your sins are forgiven. With King David at the sacrificial altars, he was recognizing his own sinfulness and his need for God's power to renew him. He prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Those are David's words from Psalm 51. And in the sinful woman's encounter with Jesus, there is no sacrificial altar. Only her heart is surrendered. But there doesn't need to be an altar because Jesus himself came to be the sacrifice. And in his interceding, her forgiveness is paid in full. In John 4, Jesus tells us, the day is coming and is now here when people will worship not in Jerusalem or the holy mountain, but in spirit and in truth For these are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Those who worship with heartfelt rituals like King David, those who worship through heartfelt tears like this woman on her knees. It's all about the heart. 
the heart that knows that it can't provide its own salvation, but it needs the power and the presence of the living God who came to save. So where's your heart? That can be a dangerous question, but maybe not for the reason that you think. It's dangerous because it's a question that can so easily tempt us to judgmentalism. Because maybe because we realize how flighty our own hearts can be, we tend to deflect that question away from us. And instead of asking our own hearts, how do I actually enter into a place of worship? Do I come expecting to experience the living God every time I enter into his presence? Where is my heart right now? Instead, when we hear a message like this, our first thought is, oh, I know people who aren't worshiping with their hearts. I hope they're listening to this. <laughs> right? But honestly, what do you know about what's going on in their hearts? What do they know what's going on in yours? The question is not, what's going on in your neighbor's heart? The question is, where is yours? In Romans 14, Paul says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment. As it is written, as surely as I live, said the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. So today I want to ask you, is there anything that you have let become a stumbling block in your heart of worship? Have you, do you have expectations of yourself or expectations of others that has kept you from recognizing your need and just coming to Jesus for what only he can give. The Lord wants to know, where is your heart? Because that's what he's here for today, for you to renew and to restore your heart to himself. At the end of our passage from Isaiah 1, after asking his people to turn their hearts back toward him, God moves from the intimidating statement to one that shows the kindness of his true purpose. He says, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. No matter how blood red your sins have become, there will be a restoration, a washing clean, if you'll just let your hearts come home. No matter how far it's wandered, it can be restored in Jesus' hands. Jesus calls us, Come to me and find life. So will you let him be your Lord? Will you confess and let him take your guilt and forgive your sin? Will you tell him what's on your heart? Will you let him guide you? Will you let him fill you with his life and give you his joy? Because this is what Jesus died for and what he rose to life for. That no matter where you've been, he wants to bring beauty from the ashes in you. So today, will you unclench your fists around those things that, you're, that are holding you back, things you try to protect, and instead open your heart to the one who wants to be your home? Please pray with me.
Lord Jesus, we confess like those Pharisees, we can get so caught up in what we know and what we think and how we judge that we forget how much we need you. And we forget the things that we let stand between you and us, between each other. And we confess, Lord, that we need you to wash us clean and make us new, give us life. Lord, as we study your word, we've seen that what we need is not another rule, not another law, but you, your power, your presence, your peace in us. So Lord Jesus, in this moment, we ask that you would, by your death and resurrection for us, make our scarlet sins as white as snow. We come to you, Jesus, and we ask that you would give us your life because we trust that you came to bring beauty from ashes in us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.